Welcome to the City Church Podcast. We hope that you will be abundantly blessed by this message. If you would like to find out more about the city, please log on to our website, www.thecity.sg. Hello, good morning, folks. Happy New Year. We are uh, No. All right. Thanks for the muted response. Happy New Year, folks. Come on, are you excited for a brand new year? Now, uh, almost 10 years ago, I made a decision to go to a ministry school right out of national service. Um, you know, I felt distinctly, distinctively called by God to serve uh, him in ministry, to uh, work in a church, and I wanted to be equipped and trained for it. Now, that was around the time where many of my friends were pursuing their degrees, their careers, and I made the decision then, 10 years ago, good gosh, to... Uh, go to ministry school and to pursue a calling uh, in full-time vocational ministry. Now, let me be honest with you. At the time when I made that decision, I felt like the most spiritual person on planet Earth. I was like, look at all these heathens doing their heathen things and look at me with my ministry call. Look at me pursuing the call of God with passion and fervency. I felt like the most spiritual person on planet Earth. Thank you for encouraging me. Uh, and you know, I, I of course uh, made my way down uh, to, to the US and uh, I remember distinctly it was day one of orientation, I went into a room full of people, there were about a thousand people in there and I was, uh, I was seated between two uh, men that I've never met before in my life and one was on my right, one was on my left. And there was this customary thing you did when you went to a school like that. You would turn and you ask, hey, what's your name and how did you come? to this ministry school, how do you come here? And so I turned to my right and I introduced myself and I said, how do you come to this ministry school? And he said that, oh, you know, I was a medical doctor by profession, I had my own practice, was very successful. And then, you know, I saw people, saw my patients die on me. And it was right around the same time I saw the miraculous power of God and I had no explanation, no grit for it. And so I sold everything I had, I uprooted my family and I moved to this place just to experience the power of God because I had no answers and explanations for it. And then I was like, oh, okay, cool. And so I turned to my left, <laughs> thinking that I, I could, okay, if that guy seems, you know, abnormal. Maybe I can find someone more on my level. And so I, I turned over to the left and I said, hey, uh, how did you get here? And he said, you know, I'm just so hungry for the power of God, for the glory of God. And so again, this was a man who sold everything he had, and he didn't have much, and so he moved down to where we were at uh, in this ministry school in his car, and he had no apartment, no place to stay. He was living out of his car, and he said, I'm just trusting God for provision. I only have about a month's worth of resource and finances left until I have to go back. And then I went, cool. And so I just looked forward, <laughs> and I didn't feel so special anymore. <clears throat> now, one of the things I realized is that uh, you know, there will always be people, better people with better motives, doing better things uh, than, than I would, you know, and honestly, I don't often see them because my eyes are upon myself. And that day, I needed a lesson in humility, a lesson in humility. And I thought for this year, as we begin a brand new year, I would like to take the first sermon of the year to chart a course for our church. I'd like to talk to us about this thing of humility. Humility as the distinctive posture of our church. 
humility that defines our discipleship. Humility is the way of Jesus. Now, I wouldn't profess to be the most humble person on planet Earth. Most of my IKEA furniture has multiple holes in it because I don't read the instruction manual. Because I'm like, no manual is going to tell me how to fix my furniture. I do it my own way. And so things are wobbly and full of holes in my home. Um, you know, one of the things that we discovered recently with our baby girl, Sage, is that whenever she does something, uh, in her view, very impressive, she would turn, look at us, and start clapping, longing for applause. And of course, we hold ourselves back. It was like, we don't want to feed this you know, prideful instinct in her. And so we're like, it's only okay. I'm just kidding. Of course, we go, yeah, that was amazing. Put the shapes in the hole again. Put the shapes in the hole again. But all of us have this impulse, right? Have this bend towards pride. If we are truly honest with ourselves, humility is not very often a naturally occurring thing. It's something that requires internet intentionality, something that we have to willingly posture ourselves to grow in. Am I making sense? And so for the first teaching of the year, I'd like to begin this with a talk on humility. And usually, you know, if you grew up in the church tradition, you know that the first message of the year, more often than not, is about like glory, power, bigger, better, you know, this will be the best year ever. And I believe by the grace of God that all of that is possible. I believe that in God, we indeed go from glory to glory. But before we even talk about higher, bigger, better, I'd like to call us to go lower. To go lower. I think that is first and foremost the posture, the, the posture that ought to be lower before higher. Did you know that the character trait of humility is the second most thought trait in the Bible, second only to love? One scholar counted uh, 50 instances where love was taught either by precept or example, and in the New Testament, he counted 40 instances where humility was taught. And that same scholar concludes that these two stones, that of love and humility, are the foundational stones of Christian character. All other character traits in one way or another are built upon these two stones, love and humility. And yet we don't, yeah, I've never heard someone go, yeah, this year I just really, really want to grow in humility. I, I'm making that my core pursuit. Like this year for my discipleship, I want to be a humble person. I want to be more of a humble person. I rarely hear that. We don't make it often a goal of a spiritual formation for discipleship. But for Jesus and the writers of the New Testament, humility was a core spiritual virtue. And I put it to you that it's more important than you think. And so this morning, I'd love to read a couple of passages of scripture to frame our time before we begin in a word of prayer. Reading first off from 1 Peter chapter 5. Hear the word of the Lord. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's suffering, who also will share the glory to reveal to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing as God wants you to be. Not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve. Not lauding it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. In the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders, all of you, Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because, hear this, God opposes the proud, 
but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Reading also a passage from Matthew chapter 5, this is the starting portion of what is referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. And he said this, Blessed or blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. This morning I'd like to speak to you on a subject of a community marked by humility. A community marked by humility. Let's pray. Jesus, we acknowledge your presence in this room. God, you're not just a concept that we expound. You're not just a figure that we talk about that lived once upon a time. You are here, you are real, and you are present in this room. We honor you. We honor you, O God. And Lord, we ask even as we look upon your word this day that you would move upon our hearts. Speak to us, we pray. We yield our bodies, our ears, inclined to hear your words, O God. Speak to us this day. And Lord, I profess that it's not by the mere eloquence of men, nor the depth of my research that lives are changed, but it's only through and by your Spirit. So Spirit, invite you now. Come, come like the wind, come like fire, come upon this place, come upon our hearts, we pray. In your name, amen. Now, something I've come to realize in my years of following Jesus is that you cannot understand the Christian faith apart from appreciating the paradoxical nature of it. Christianity is full of paradoxes. Now, a paradox is often a statement that appears contradictory on the surface, but you will take a gander at it and look beneath the surface. There often lies hidden wisdom, hidden truths, hidden principles, hidden lessons for those who are willing to seek a paradox. If you want to understand the Christian faith and following Jesus, then you cannot understand it apart from appreciating paradox. Christianity says if you want to be great, you have to be least. Christianity says if you want to be first, you have to be last. Christianity says if you want to be rich, you need to be poor. In essence, the way of Jesus is counter-cultural, counter-intuitive, and it confounds and confronts and contradicts what is commonly referred to as conventional wisdom. It's paradox. And here in the Beatitudes, we are confronted with the paradoxical nature of God's kingdom. Now, the Beatitudes is a crucial text to read because it shows us, it gives us Jesus' clearest teaching and words about his kingdom and how its citizens ought to live. One scholar calls the Sermon on the Mount the manifesto of the kingdom of God. Now, the challenge often with reading the Beatitudes is that because it's written in this kind of like proverbial kind of language, it's written a long time ago to a different context, a different audience, we often dismiss the words of Jesus as quaint, good to know, kind of like poetic sayings that have little to no relevance to the way we live in the world. However, I believe if we were to look deeper into what Jesus is saying, we'll discover the potency of his words and the relevancy of it in this day. For today, we'll be just focusing on one line from that sermon, that famous sermon, and that is this, blessed are the poor in spirit. 
Now note this, Jesus opens up the most famous sermon ever preached and written in human history with words of poverty. Jesus' audience then were people who were displaced and oppressed and subjugated for generations. There were people marginalized and oppressed by an oppressive regime. For the Jewish people then, they had this vision and hope and longing for a Messiah who would come and liberate them from this oppression, from this rule. They had this vision and this promise that they would be restored once again to dignity, that they would once again regain the seat of power and honor and live in prosperity. This was their hope and longing. And so if you can imagine you are a Jewish person in that day, generations of subjugation or oppression, a deep longing in your heart that has yet to be fulfilled. And then Jesus, the Messiah, comes onto the scene. And you are amongst the crowds, longing to hear who the king will be and what his kingdom will be like. This is a loaded and a pregnant moment. Eyes were looking upon Jesus, ears inclined to hear, hearts expectant, about to leap out their chest. And then Jesus begins with these words. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. What about my prosperity, Jesus? What about my riches, Jesus? What about my power, my honor, my glory, Jesus? He defies all their expectations and he announces his kingdom this way. Now the word blessed here is the Greek word makarios, which translates to happy. Now Greek scholars would we all agree that the word happy because of our current kind of culture is too sedated a word to describe what this word makarios is. Now makarios would capture not just feelings of euphoria, but it captures this idea of delight, joy, flourishing, abundance, and divine approval. It is what a good God wills and intends for his creation. You are blessed. And so Jesus here is saying that the poor in spirit are makarios. To put it another way, Jesus is saying that the way to a truly abundant and rich life is through the result of a poverty of spirit. A truly abundant and rich life is the result of a poverty of spirit. Paradox. Paradox. Which leads us to this question then. What does Jesus mean by poverty of spirit? Do I still have your attention, folks? Now, some in trying to make sense of this scripture, this phrase, would refer to it as a kind of material poverty. Blessed are you when you are poor and lacking. God is then opposed to the rich and wealthy. He has this disproportionate favor towards the poor. Now, though Jesus has a lot to say in scripture about the allure of wealth, and the challenges it poses to our discipleship. He does not disfavor the wealthy. In fact, in Luke 8, we read that Jesus and his disciples were supported financially by a group of women who had the means to do so. So I don't believe Jesus here is saying blessed are the materially poor, those without wealth or resources. Another way that people view this word poverty, or I'm trying to make sense of it, is with this kind of poverty of esteem. Is this self-loathing, self-hatred, I am nothing, I am a worm kind of theology, I'm the worst, I'm horrid, is to denigrate oneself. It's to basically show how disgusted we are with ourselves and believe that it will somehow attract the favor of God. Now Ken Hughes says this, let us understand what poverty of spirit is not. 
It's not the conviction that one is of no value whatsoever. It does not mean the absence of self-worth, or as one theologian puts it, ontological insignificance. It does not require that we believe ourselves to be zeros. Such an attitude is simply not scriptural, for Christ's death on our behalf teaches us that we are of great value. And so I don't think that poverty that Jesus is talking about here is about giving, us, giving up our material possessions, this feeling of self-loathing, self-hatred. I don't think that is what Jesus is getting at at all. So then what does Jesus mean? Now the key is in the choice of words that Jesus uses here. Now this is from a commentary. Tokos, which is the word poor used here, is from the verb meaning to shrink, cower or cringe as beggars often did in that day. Classical Greek will use the word to refer to a person reduced to total destitution who is crouched in a corner begging. As he held out one hand for arms, he often hid his face with the other hand because he was ashamed of being recognized. The term did not simply mean poor, but begging poor. Now, I remember on my trip to one of the wealthiest cities in the world, you know, I was expecting to see sights and sounds and be amazed by the wonder of this great city. I was walking down the street and one of the most contrasting sights I've ever seen in my life was this city that was known for immense wealth and prosperity. And on one street were just person after person after person, as far as the eye can see, that was sitting on the ground begging for change. And one of the sights that I will never forget is a lady who had her face planted on the ground, her hands out, in front of her begging for change, completely dependent on the mercy and kindness of strangers. That is the word tokos. That is the word picture that we should get when we read that word tokos, poor in spirit. Jesus is saying here, when it comes to those who are blessed, makarios, and who would enter into his kingdom, they need this kind of tokos of spirit is to say that there's something inside of them that fundamentally realizes their desperation and need for God. They can't save themselves. They're fully dependent on God, not just theoretically, but experientially. John MacArthur would go on to say this, the word commonly used for ordinary poverty was panikros and is used for the widow Jesus saw giving an offering in the temple. She had very little, but she did have two small copper coins. She was poor, but not a beggar. One who is panikros poor has at least some meager resources, but one who is tokos poor, however, is completely dependent on others for sustenance. He has absolutely no means of self-support. D.A. Carson was summed this up brilliantly by saying, poverty of spirit then is personal acknowledgement of spiritual bankruptcy. Blessed are the poor in spirit. It's not a deep, it's not just a theoretical realization, it's a deep personal recognition of spiritual need and bankruptcy. Apart from God, I have nothing, no way to hope, no way to salvation, no joy, no true lasting happiness. I have nothing. And yet Jesus calls me blessed. Poor in spirit as a virtue does not refer to a poor quality of faith. It's the acknowledgement of one's spiritual powerlessness and bankruptcy apart from Christ. Those who feel their spiritual need. To be poor in spirit means you are never far away from recognizing your genuine need for God to do a further work in your heart. This is the hallmark of spiritual maturity. 
Spiritual maturity doesn't look like, I've listened to all the sermons in the world already, my hands are folded, impress me, pastor. No, spiritual maturity looks like a depth of hunger and thirst because we recognize the depravity of our souls and our need for God to break in. It's a genuine need for God. Humility. Now, there's no better story in the Bible to illustrate this than that of King David. You know, King David, and you know, many of us are familiar with the story, is a man after God's own heart, plucked out of total obscurity, anointed king, and he went on to do mighty things for God. Now, there's a point of David's life where he allowed for the, this life of comfort and prosperity that God had given to him to do something to his heart. And he was eventually led to a place of complacency and compromise. And the story goes, he basically preys on a woman, gets her pregnant, murders her husband, covers the whole thing up, and then thinks that he has basically gotten away from it, with it. Then the Lord sent the prophet Nathan to confront David. So Nathan uses this parable, right? A rich man took a poor man's only sheep and killed it. Even though he had many flocks of his own, what will you do? So David, being this former shepherd, right, was so angered by the story that he said this, as surely as the Lord lives, this man who did this must die. And then Nathan just pointed out to him, well, you are this man. You are this man. Now, isn't this such a fascinating observation of the human condition, the human heart? Notice this division of heart. Here he was, steeped in sin, but yet he had righteous indignation. And it goes to show that you can hold areas of deep passion and deep hypocrisy in your heart all at the same time. That's how deceptive the human heart is. Now, the challenge for David in the time was, in the old covenant, there was no way of forgiveness. There was no mercy for those who would commit willful adultery and murder. And so he comes to this place of desperation and despondency. And read about this in Psalm 51. It says this, this David's cry, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. He goes on further in the psalm to say this, you do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, you, God, will not despise. Total acknowledgement of spiritual need or spiritual bankruptcy, utter dependency on God. Well, the problem with all that I've said earlier is that none of us want to be dependent on anything or on anyone. In fact, we will do everything in our power, use all our resources to make that so, so that we can be independent. We don't have to rely on anyone. This cultural value of independence, of self-reliance, self-sustaining is lauded and is viewed as one of the most prime and, and sought-after virtues. And so we don't have poor in spirit in our world. And one pastor describes it as such. We have middle-class spirit <laughs> or elite high-cess spirits. We, we, we have no poor spirits here. And what it means to be middle-class in spirit or elite in spirit that pastor would describe, it, it is to carry something within us that goes 
I know better, I have my own skills, knowledge and know-how. I can make for myself a life that is good. I can earn, I can merit, I can work my way towards salvation. I don't need God. It's a kind of functional atheism which profess Christ in name but utterly excludes him from all major dealings and decisions of one's life. God, you're, it's good. I, I, I got this. I'm okay. No poverty of spirit. If we look deep enough, right, we realize this impulses, this thinking is rooted in pride. It's rooted in pride. It's pride that says, I don't need God's mercy. I can find my way to self-actualize. It's, it's pride that says, I can fix things on my own. I'm strategic, I'm wise, I'm smart, I went to school, I don't need God. It's pride that says, I can attain salvation, happiness, and a good life in and off my own strength on my own terms. And we realize soon after that in our life, pride manifests itself as self-importance, thinking too highly of oneself. It produces this kind of messiah complex, right? I alone am the one who can change things. Manifests itself as self-absorption is to be preoccupied with one's desires, feelings, and interests with no regard to others. It also manifests itself as self-reliance. Through sheer will alone, I can make things happen. Hear me, folks. If the poor in spirit are the ones who inherit the kingdom of God, then the prideful are the ones who willingly exclude and alienate themselves from God's kingdom. Pride is anti-kingdom. Now, one of the saddest stories in the Bible is that of King Asa. He started out really well for God, and the Bible tells us that Asa did what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord. He taught him idols, he reformed the land during his reign, and he cried out to God in time of need. The Bible tells us that God prospered him, and there was no threat of war until the 35th year of his reign. The Bible tells us further that towards the later years of his life, he disobeyed God. He relied on his own ways. And when he was confronted by a prophet similar to David, he imprisoned the prophet and further oppressed the people. Not the best response here. And when he started developing feet problems, the Bible says, instead of crying out to God who has delivered him, he relied on his own physicians. Now what happened here? Pride got into his heart. And it's from this story of Asa that we get this well-quoted verse, don't we? Second Chronicles chapter 16. For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. We profess this as a verse of promise. God, your eyes upon those whose hearts are fully committed to you. But read on further in that same verse. You, Asa, have done a foolish thing and from now on, you will be at war. We cite this verse as an incredible verse of promise, but it's more of a missed promise because of pride. This indictment and rebuke on Asa's pride. God's heart was grieved and broken in that instance. Another verse, Isaiah chapter 14. Now this describes the fall of, the, of King Babylon. How have you fallen from heaven, morning star, son of dawn? You have been cast down to the earth. You who were once laid low to the nations, you sin hard. I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly, on the outmost heights of Mount Zephon. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. And this is, folks, the heart of pride. I will, I will, I will. 
I will ascend the heavens. I will exalt my own throne. I will be like the most high. I'll be successful. I will own X amount of properties. I'll be remembered and respected. I will leave a legacy that no one can deny. I will, I will, I will. From the garden to Babel to King Asa to First World Singapore, pride is still very much alive and at work. Now this is why God hates pride. Because being prideful isn't just a side personality type or a temptation for some. Pride is opposed to the kingdom of God. C.S. Lewis would say this, according to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. Now, it's very easy for us to distance ourselves from this concept of pride. When we think of pride, we have this image of a guy with his nose up in the air, being very arrogant and condescending. But I'd like to put it to you that pride often takes very subtle forms. It's often more insidious than you know. It often has a foothold in your heart and you rarely would even recognize it. One pastor will go on to list down what he refers to as signs of pride or pride tells. He says this, you know, that a few signs of pride in this view, not wanting to talk with someone or spend time with someone because they don't quite measure up, thinking they should ask me to do that, I would have done it better. Waiting to turn a conversation to highlight something you have done, hearing about another person's problems and feeling better about yourself, trying to serve God without prayer, thinking pride is not that big of a problem for you, not confessing sin or need unless you're backed into a corner. Pride looks down on others, does not listen well. It's stubborn. It's not eager to learn. It's not quick to admit wrong. It's competitive and easily threatened. It's insecure. It finds it hard to rejoice in the success and good of others. And the final quote to nail that coffin, C.S. Lewis, as long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you're looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. Pride is the complete anti-God state of mind. And that is why we read in 1 Peter, he offers us this warning and promise. God opposes the proud, but he shows favor to the humble. God opposes the proud. In some translations, it says he resists the proud. It is a strong military kind of term. Now, isn't life in our world challenging enough do not have the God of the universe opposed to you. Isn't that such a scary thought? That God could be opposed to us because of our prideful, willful arrogance. If I were to ask you today, name the greatest threat your discipleship. Some of you might go porn, Netflix, you know, too much Facebook, TikTok, for sure. Uh, it really sucked up like three hours of my life, but. Kudos to the rest of you who enjoy it for recipes, I believe. Um, but I dare say almost none of you would say the greatest threat to my discipleship is pride. Hear me, the ultimate tragedy of pride is that it positions our lives in direct opposition to the presence and purposes of God. Pride distorts our vision so that we fail to see what life truly is. We live under this childish delusion that life is to be centered around me, around us, what I want, what I desire, what I long for. Pride, li prideful living is conformity to the kingdom of darkness. 
But thank God, folks, in His mercy, God gives us the antidote to pride. That is humility, to be poor in spirit. Into a world full of pride, Jesus announces, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Pride is spiritual blindness. Rest humility is honestly seeing ourselves in light of God's holiness, His glory, and His grace. And so I'd like to close off this message with a final question, and that is this. How do we, as a church, as a people, choose humility in 2022? Peter would say this in that verse that we read, humble yourselves, humble yourselves. I want you to notice the language here, humble yourselves. It is to say that we don't merely pray for humility or fall into it by accident. It requires us to intentionally live it out, pursue it in the way we conduct ourselves. And I've realized that in life, it's either we choose humility or God in his mercy would give us humility. Humility is a choice. It's an internal awareness. It's a posture of heart we've been invited to join. Now, if there could be a pathway for our church in 2022 to move towards humility, it would be this, this 10 things that I would suggest to you. Now, if you were to recall, I actually talked about this list at the start of 2021. And I chanced upon this really depressing research for teachers like me, that 50% of the information I present now, you would forget in an hour. <laughs> within 24 hours, you'll forget 70% of it. And within a week, you would forget 90% of it. And so, please, at least try to remember this list. Or like screenshot it or something, right? 10%, that's the goal here. Uh, just a really simple list, you know, and, and I presented it last year, and I hope we would intentionally take it to heart this year. First off, you know, have leaders and mentors that you're willing to subject yourselves to their direction. Have a close circle that you are open and honest about your flaws and failings. As the stuff we talked about, you know, what our dreams and desires are for community or what kind of, kind of setup in life we would really, really call for our members to pursue and consider in our lives. And we distill it down to you know, a few kind of groups or communities, if you will. First off, you know, it is to be committed to a gathering like this, where the believers gather in unity to pursue God's glory, His presence, His power. It's to be committed to a smaller group, kind of like a life group, where you would have open discussion, where you grow in discipleship together. It's also to have a small group of friends, you know, maybe two or three, that you can be honest and transparent with. You can be accountable to, they can check in on you, they can walk with you. And it's also to have mentors in our life, that one, two individuals, further along in life, well-seasoned, who can really speak to your life that you trust your whole life to, to give you direction. And I think you know, that would make for a holistic life. Third point, you know, don't shy away from the insignificant and mundane. Exercise empathy, be quick to listen, slow to speak. Venture out of your echo chambers to hear those who may think and are gifted differently from you. One of the most beautiful things I got to do in my break was visit other churches. And some of you took the opportunity to do so. And I think that's such a powerful thing to do. Don't recommend you take next Sunday because we are not on off, we are back, folks. Wait for the end of the year, you have the two weeks. But I know you have to go, you have to go, it's fine. But it serves to me as a reminder that the kingdom of God is far bigger than this expression here. It's far bigger. One of the best lessons I learned from my time with Bill is that narrow is the way into the kingdom, but the kingdom is far bigger, wider, and expensive than you know. There's so much that God is doing in our world. 
one of the things that, that we, we can do to posture ourselves in humility is to learn from people who are different from us. Six, you know, take steps of faith that requires God's grace, His intervention, His power. Seven, consider deeply how one's sinfulness, how daily how deep one's sinfulness is, how vast God's mercy is. Eight, resist entitlement and instead choose to use your privilege for the sake of others. Nine, be grateful. And the last one is this, be devoted to a life of prayer. Now I think of that verse in Chronicles that we quote often, right? My people humble themselves and pray. Prayer in a time of need expresses faith. Whereas prayer in a time of plenty expresses humility. And I wonder in a prideful society like ours, what a movement of humility among God's people will do for our world. Will we see the promise of that scripture? God's presence and power upon our land to bring healing, wholeness, and restoration. Pride is the kingdom of darkness in seed form. Humility is the kingdom of God in seed form. And whatever we choose to plant will grow and produce fruit in our midst. Close off with a final passage of scripture in Isaiah chapter 66. Has not my hand made all these things? And so they came into being, declares the Lord. They are the ones I look on with favor, those who are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble at my word. What a promise, folks. He looks upon those who are humble with favor. Final quote for you, Peter Kreef. If we come to God with empty hands, he will fill them. If we come with full hands, he finds no place to put himself. It's our beggary, our receptivity, that is our hope. Now, as I sought this year to have an inspiring word for you to begin the new year, I couldn't seem for the love of me to conjure up a word that you know, fits within my paradigm of an inspiring new year message. I didn't have you know, the big you know, charge or anything like that. All I had was this simple phrase and charge that I believe came from God and the Spirit. Build a humble community. Build a humble community. I think one of the most underrated traits in the Bible is that of humility. And one of the least talked about traits to our discipleship is pride. And so, as we begin this new year, I hope to inspire you. My vision for us as a church community is not just higher but lower, not wider but deeper, not stronger but more reliant, a humble community. So with our vision of becoming more like Jesus, let's have a vision for humility, shall we? To grow, to be more dependent on God, each other, less on all strength, to resist this kind of willful arrogance and independence and pride to be poor in spirit so that we may inherit the kingdom of God. There's that line in the verse that says, humble yourself, and it goes on to say, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. One of the greatest things I've learned is that much of burnout, stress, anxiety comes from pride. In humility, we trust God. We give him full reign and control, our trust, our hope, our dependence. In some way, worry is a kind of anti-humility. 
It's imagining a future apart from God. This invitation to humility here is to cast our anxieties, the whole weight of our lives, all of our agency, all that we think we can achieve on our own terms, on our own accord, on our own strength, and we put it wholly to God. Janice read this incredible passage of scripture at the close of worship. It is summed up by this term, kenosis, Christ emptying of himself. And in humility, this is what we do. We join in Christ's example of kenosis and become to Jesus and empty ourselves of our accolades, our strengths, our achievements, our know-hows, our skills. We pour it all out at the feet of Jesus and go, apart from you, God, I have nothing. And I need you so much, God. Apart from you, I cannot stand. Apart from you, I have no purpose. Apart from you, I cannot even love you. I need you, God. And let us begin this day with profession, this year with the profession, a humble profession. We need you, oh God. We need you, oh God. Apart from you, we have nothing. We are poor in spirit. But we are not poor just for poverty's sake. But this poverty, we, we, we're promised that life is truly found in this dependency. Life, abundant life is truly found in leaning upon you, God. Abundant life is truly found when we are empty of ourselves so that we can be filled by you. And so I want to invite you this day to lift your hands before you if you want to respond to this message and all that I've just said. And I believe the Spirit's conviction and moving upon your heart. If your hands almost a symbolic act, say to God, God, you can have it all. All my life, all that I have, all my accolades, strengths, accomplishments and achievements, all my skills and know-hows and defaults towards independence, self-reliance, self-absorption, God, you can have it all. I empty myself out this day. And I ask for your spirit to fill me. I need you, God. I need you, God. I need you, God. In your own way, just begin to respond to God. With your hands lifted before you, say, God, I empty myself. I empty myself. Fill me, oh God. Fill me, oh God. My spirit is broken and contrite. I need your mercy. I need your grace. I need your provision. I need your leading.